There's one thing that is invisible to the eye that affects your money, and that is your money mindset. Your money mindset is how you think about money and is affected by your family, friends, culture, and more. In this episode, find out how to shift your money mindset and deal with the scarcity mindset to improve your relationship with money. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Hello, this is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today on the show, we have Derek Hagen, who is a CFP and financial therapist. We'll be talking all about money mindset and money scripts. Derek Hagen is the founder of Money Health Solutions, a financial therapy and consulting firm. Money Health Solutions helps clients live intentionally and mindfully using money as a tool to support their ideal life. He facilitates financial health by helping clients understand their own money psychology, lowering financial stress, and increasing confidence in financial decisions. Welcome to the show, Derek. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you here. I think what you're going to share with our audience is going to be super useful. I know money mindset and money beliefs are something that everyone has, and it affects our spending decisions, and it can have a huge impact on your life. So let's dive right in. And I would love to talk a little bit about what money mindset is, what money beliefs are, and why are they important? Yeah, that's a really great question. And we're diving right in. So money mindset is, it's a complex topic. I mean, complex in the sense that there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So if we start and think of money mindset as the top level, below that, you've got your money beliefs. And we call those money scripts in the, that's kind of the jargon. And money script is if you can think of script, like an actor would have a script, or if you're tech savvy, it might be a computer script. But it's something that it just goes automatically. You don't have a choice. If you're an actor, you have to read from the script. And the computer reads the program without any question. So that's kind of like a money script. These are things that are operating in the background that drive our behavior. And I like script better than I like belief because belief almost gives us the sense that we know what they are. You know, Because you can ask, what do you believe? And you can answer that. But a money script, unless you've done some work, so 90 eight, 99% of people don't know what their money scripts are. Uh, so that's important. So bringing this to the awareness into our awareness is going to be very helpful. So you've got this collection of money scripts and a money script is any rule that you can think of around money, right? So money should be saved and not spent is a money script. Money doesn't grow on trees is a money script. There's infinite number of things that you could have learned growing up. And that your collection of all those money scripts 
will make up your money mindset. Does that make sense? Definitely. So I love that you kind of shared what a money script is compared to money beliefs. And I definitely think that's probably more appropriate of a term because yeah, money script is kind of just like this underlying programming that's in our brain. Whereas money belief kind of gives us this like agency, like, oh, we believe this, where I think, you know, a lot of us are kind of pre-programmed, so to speak, with our money mindset from our family, from our culture, from our friends. And then it's not until maybe we face some issues with our spending or our behavior or money that we even have a chance to investigate what these money scripts are to actually, quote, change our money beliefs, right? Absolutely. You hit it on the head. And I like that you brought up culture and upbringing because just for context, these scripts that we have, I call it writing. They get written as a child mostly. So they mostly come from your childhood. And when you're young, you're trying to figure out how the world works, including how money works. So we call money scripts, they're contextual because they worked. Like we picked apart all this information and we figured out something that worked. But we have such a small sample size and immature minds when we're growing up. So we don't see how money works everywhere. We see how money works with this one little situation. So the easy example that I like to use is if I was growing up and every time I heard money being talked about, there was a fight. I'm going to create a little rule in the back of my head that says money equals fights or don't talk about money or something along those lines because that's my world. That's what I saw. So they're driven by, and that's not just your family, it's your culture, it's your neighborhood, it's everything about your upbringing. And that's one avenue. The other one is kind of like the money version of trauma. We call those financial flashpoints. So you could still be an adult. And if there was a highly emotional, usually embarrassing, but just any kind of highly emotional event around money, our brain kind of develops a quick rule or it doesn't want to do that again. So there's a coping mechanism that says, For example, we got made fun of for having the wrong kind of clothes on. Therefore, we only buy high-end clothes now. So you only buy high-end clothes would be a money script that was written from that financial flashpoint of we got publicly shamed for having, you know, poor clothes on or something like that. Oh, that's so fascinating. I think that's so important to kind of review what those financial flashpoints are. And as you were describing that, I was just thinking of some things in my life that still kind of trigger me to this day. And I'm like, huh, interesting. Okay. That's probably (laughs) where that comes from. And, you know, I think it's super important to kind of look at these money scripts and see what your money beliefs are, because if we really want to make a change, we have to investigate what those are. And I know for my personal life, I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt, but it took a lot of changing my beliefs to actually do that. You know, I used to think student loans are the good debt. Everyone has student loan debt, right? I used to think people that wanted money were greedy. People who were rich were evil. You know, I had all of these ideas like, oh, you know, rich people are evil. If you want money, you're greedy. Like everyone has student loan debt. Like, so why is it a problem? You know, I'll never be rich or I'll never make money. Like, why do I care? And all of those things were really hindrances on me paying off my debt. And I realized if I want to get out of the student loan debt, I have to get rid of all of these beliefs. And it was painful. Like I had to really face these money scripts, as you say, and kind of rewrite them and say, maybe all debt is not good debt. And 
I personally, for me, don't like debt and don't feel comfortable. I feel highly anxious with all of this debt. I was extremely depressed and anxious at that time. And if I ever want to be financially secure and financially safe, I can't really have this idea that rich people are greedy or, you know, if you just want money, you're evil. And so I had to get rid of all of that. And I think there's like this identity shedding that you kind of have to do before you're able to make a big change like that. Absolutely. So let's let's pause and say congratulations for all the work that you've done. There's a lot of good stuff in what you just said. And I'm sure your listeners know the story, but let's let's put that story through the money script lens and talk a little bit about that. Because had you not done any exploration, you would have floated through life with those beliefs that you had no idea about. You would have just, you know, if we have deep rooted beliefs or money scripts, that feels like fact to us. It's indistinguishable from fact. So if you have a belief that rich people are greedy, possibly because if you're like me, you grew up in poverty and the only rich people that you saw were the landlady and you know that one guy that drove the fancy car, that's all I knew, right? So then that's easy to make that script. That's going to feel exactly like a fact. Oh yeah, of course rich people are greedy or oh, of course money corrupts. And you're not even going to be able to do anything about that because it's so deeply rooted. Now, you were able to overcome a lot of that, which is awesome. And what I want your listeners to hear is that awareness gets you 80% of the way there. So much of the stuff bubbling underneath conscious awareness, as soon as you become aware of it, that gets you well ahead of most people. And so doing some exploration, looking inside yourself, figuring out where did these beliefs come from and what beliefs do I even have first? And then where did they come from? can get you a lot of the ways towards where you want to be ideally. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think the awareness was a huge part of me trying to make that progress. And speaking of awareness, I think something that a lot of people experience, but might not even have the awareness, might not even have the vocabulary around it is this idea of money scarcity. And I know it's something that I still feel like I have to fully get over. You know, I've made a lot of strides, but I still had this feeling like there was not enough money. What if I never get work again? You know, I'm self-employed now for the past six years. And especially right now, you know, with coronavirus, the economy, um, racial injustice and protests and so many things going on, I feel my, myself kind of going back to that, like, oh my gosh, maybe there's not enough money. There's not enough work. What if this is, this is my last paycheck? And like, I'm still working on my money script of money scarcity. And I think a lot of people have this idea of money scarcity how can people with this specific money mindset, how can they deal with that scarcity and work towards getting over it? Good question. There's a lot underneath that as well. So money scarcity and its kind of counterpart abundance. So there's a scarcity mindset and abundance mindset. Those are the opposites. Those aren't necessarily just one thing, but they're kind of a collection of money scripts. So just to bring everybody up to the same page, scarcity mindset is kind of the idea that there's never going to be enough money or there's never going to be enough work or there's never going to be enough time or whatever the resource is. So people with the scarcity mindset tend to, not always, but tend to be close with their opportunities. They're not sharing as much. They're not collaborating as much because the pie is only so big. And if I help somebody else find a job, that's one less job for me. Or if I help somebody else find a client, that's one less client for me, that kind of stuff. So if you boil it down to its core, 
it's the assumption that the pie is only so big. And if I give some pie to somebody else, that's less pie for me. Versus the abundance mindset is all about growing the pie. So let's all help. Let's all collaborate. There's a really cool book called The Go-Giver. The whole idea behind that book is just give, just give, just give. And it's all about growing the pie. So if you're growing the pie, even if your slice of that pie stays the same in percentage, you still get a better outcome because the pie got bigger. You could even have a smaller slice of the pie. But if it's part of a bigger pie, you're still better off. Um, So those are like kind of the two opposites. Now, what can you do about it? So again, kind of just being aware that these terms exist, just being aware that there is a such thing as scarcity mindset. You might be listening to this and saying, that's what I have. I can't believe that. There's a, there's a word for that because it's not, what's the old saying? Admitting you have a problem is the first step. I don't believe that's true. I think the first step is being aware that there's even a problem to have. Yeah. Before you can admit that you have it, you have to know that it's even a thing. Yeah, right? so for sure. You have to be aware that there's something to work on first before you can admit that it probably applies to you. So bringing this stuff into awareness really helps. And digging into your history is kind of the first step to uncovering all those money scripts and even the collection that make up scarcity. So what did you learn about money from your mom, from your dad? from your culture? What was your first memory of money? What was your most painful memory of money? What was your most joyous memory of money? And uh, it's probably a good time to make the distinction between simple and easy. Some things can be simple, like just stop having a scarcity mindset. (laughs) I just, I I get really kind of irritated when people, there's a lot of articles that'll come out where people just say, you just have to have a different mindset. Well, that's not easy. Okay. sounds simple. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's like saying, just stop being depressed or just don't be anxious. It's simple, right? Yeah, I can't stand when people say that. (laughs) Except it doesn't work like that. (laughs) So simple is the concept. It can be a simple concept, even though it's very, very difficult to do. So there's a distinction there. So understanding your money history is a simple concept, but it does take some work. So to go through those questions and figure out what was money's role in your life when you were growing up. What did you consider or how did your family, how did you consider rich people, quote unquote? What did that mean? Because that's a very subjective term. So as poor people, what did poor people mean when you were growing up? And you start to answer these questions for yourself and you can start to get an idea of what your foundation looks like. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, really doing that inner work to review like where this scarcity mindset comes from and then... Also, something that I've been working on with my therapist is kind of looking at empirical evidence. You know, I told her last week, I don't really have a lot of client work this week. I'm so nervous. And she's like, you've said that like every week for the past three weeks and you always find something. I've been working with you for three years and you always end up finding something. It might not come on your timeline. It might not come exactly when you want, but you've been okay up until this point. You've paid your bills up until this point. You've gotten out of $81,000 in debt. Like she reminds me, look at all this stuff that you've done so far. Like you're going back to that like anxiety, that scarcity, because you don't have what you want and what you need this very second. And, you know, being self-employed, you do kind of have to have a lot of faith that things will come and things will happen. And so, yeah, I think also looking at empirical evidence too, of like, look how far you've come now. You've been able to take care of yourself so far. And like, What are the actions 
that you can take to get more abundant? What does that abundant mindset look like? Like what would someone that has a money abundance mindset, what would they think? What they would feel? Like even as just like a quote, like acting exercise, so to speak, even if you don't believe that yet, like hypothetically, what would they look like and what would they think? And then kind of strive towards that, you know? I love that. And as, as, as you were talking, I thought of a, another good um, maybe metaphor or, or a story that might tie that in. So gratitude, I promote gratitude practice in my, with my clients. And that takes practice. It's another one of those things that's simple, but it's not easy. Just be thankful, you know, mm-hmm. count your blessings. It sounds super easy. But if you actually get in the process or the habit of what are you grateful for right now? What were you grateful for over the last 24 hours? What are you grateful to be looking forward to? What bad thing happened to you recently that you can still find a silver lining in? And what bad thing didn't happen to you that could have happened to you? I mean, if you start to view the world through gratitude, all of a sudden, it kind of shifts your shifts your mindset slowly but surely. So think if you're climbing a mountain, say, and the scarcity mindset is, look how much further I have to go. And the abundance mindset or the gratitude mindset is turning around and saying, look how far I've come. Yeah. Turn around and see, look how far I've come. And then what small micro action can I take to get for? Because I don't need to look at the whole mountain. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to take a step. What's the one step that's going to get me closer to where I go? Yeah, I think, you know, looking at what that next step is or what those next couple steps are super important. And I'm so glad that you brought up gratitude. Uh, My personal experience with gratitude is like a few years ago when I was extremely depressed and anxious and kind of just like, you know, in this negative loop spiral, my therapist had suggested, I want you to think of three things you're grateful for every day. And I'll admit my first thought was like, this is stupid. This sounds so woo woo. Like, why would I want to do this? Like I had so much resistance to it, but I was like, well, I am a good student. I like to be a perfectionist. So she told me to do it. I'll do it. (laughs) And so, you know, I did it every day for like a week and probably about the week point. I was like, huh, I am starting to feel a little better and a little lighter. And, you know, like I have accomplished more and I have done more and I do feel better because I think at least for me personally, this idea of anxiety and scarcity comes from this uncertainty around the future. And then when you focus on gratitude, it really grounds you in the present. And it also helps you reorient yourself to be like, wow, look at everything I do have compared to like, oh my God, I don't have this. I don't have that. What if I never get this? Ah, you know, this whole kind of like spiral of these things that you don't have. But you're focusing on the things that I do have. And I know something that I keep saying to myself now, kind of related to gratitude and and also as a grounding practice when I get really anxious is, I am safe, I am healthy. I am safe, I am healthy. And just thinking of those two things, I mean, especially given everything that's going on, it's like, wow, the fact that I'm safe and healthy, I feel very rich. And I think thinking of things in that way is like, there are multiple ways to be rich. Obviously, we all want to be rich in the bank account too. But some people are rich in love, rich in family. If you're healthy, you are very rich in a lot of different ways compared to a lot of people. And so, you know, that's been a good kind of way to practice gratitude and grounding at the same time. Absolutely. There's there's a an old saying that I use, I forget who the original author is or who said it first, but it's it doesn't originate with me. When things get really bad, 
you're having a really bad day. Maybe the bank account, maybe the check didn't come in at the right time or the things are going out of control. If you can take a pause and this is kind of existential, but it, it certainly helps me. But there are at least at least a billion people with a B, a billion people on Earth who would consider their prayers answered to trade places with you right now in this very anxious state that you're in. For me, that helps put it in perspective that it's actually not that bad. If a billion people would be, it was like winning the lottery to trade places with me stuck in traffic right now, they would happily take that trade. Yeah, totally. I think I've seen something similar where it's like, there are so many people that would kill to trade places with you or be where you are right now. And then also, um, I saw another one that's similar of like, remember the days when you wish that you were where you are now. And it's like, oh, yeah, like, thinking about my old self, if I knew that this was going to happen right now, wow, I would have been really like, okay. And so even when I get, you know, in the spiral now, it's like, wow, like, yeah, five, seven years ago, I would have killed to know where I'm at now and be thrilled that I'm here. And so the fact that I am here, let's enjoy it. You know, I think a lot of people get stuck in this thing of like, we can't ever enjoy where we are. It's always like looking for the next thing and the next best. And it's like, let's take a pause. Let's evaluate how far we've come. Let's enjoy the actual moment and be like, wow, yeah, I am in a great place. A lot of people would kill to be where I'm at. My old self would have killed to be where I am now. And even if that's not the case, let's say your life has downgraded for a lot of different reasons for things going on. Yeah, go back to that gratitude. What do you have to be grateful for? Even if it is just the fact I'm healthy, I am safe. Those are two huge accomplishments given everything that is going on right now. And so I think, you know, just getting back to that is super great. And so I kind of want to uh, shift gears a little bit. You know, we were talking about scarcity and that's kind of a, a very common money script, I would say, at least what I've seen in myself and my friends and other personal finance writers and bloggers. What are some other common money scripts that people have? Great question. So the, the reminder is that it, these are going to be variations. So everybody's going to have a different one. There's infinite money scripts. But a common, very common one is some variation of life would be better if I had more money. Some variation of that. So we're always, you know, that could be money will make me happy or money will make me safe or I'll be happy once I get that next promotion. Some version of that. Or you already talked about this one, but money is bad. So the all the different variations of that. Rich people are evil, money corrupts, that kind of thing. And that one's particularly dangerous, dangerous in the sense of harming future you. Because if I hold a belief, and you you know this well, because you already talked about it, but if you're holding the belief that rich people are bad, and I implement some habits and I start saving, and but those balances keep going up and up and up, pretty soon I have some tension because, wait a minute, I have money, but rich people are bad, but I'm not a bad person. So there's this subconscious aversion to money. So they'll spend it. They'll find a way to get rid of it. They won't take promotions. They won't go after new jobs. And they don't know why. Remember, this stuff is floating underneath conscious awareness. So rich people are bad or some anti-rich beliefs. Those are the ones that can be harmful and it's very common. And then we don't talk about money or you don't talk about money or it's not polite to talk about money. That's a very common one as well which feeds into the stigma in our culture here that says you can't talk about money because, I mean, I don't, I don't know why. People will talk about everything, their politics and their sexuality and their 
their disgusting health problems. People will tell you about their gross toenail thing. Yeah. No problem. But if you ask them how much it's going to cost to get fixed, they'll clam up because they don't want to tell you how much it costs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are so many different money scripts that affect people. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this kind of money script that money is bad or, you know, people think that people who have money are greedy or bad. And so, yeah, if they come into money, their instinct is to just instantly kind of spend it and get rid of it. And I actually had a few guests on the show who have gotten life insurance payouts and they're like, there's so much trauma related to this payout that I don't want it. I also know someone who got a settlement from a traumatic experience that happened to them and they got, you know, a payout, some money. Once again, they did not want it. Like even though the money was a good thing, because obviously having that money to be able to take care of yourself in light of all of this trauma is great, but it was so hard for them to hold on to it because it just feels like, I'm keeping this trauma. I want to spend it, you know? So I think there's a lot to unpack in that specific situation. Yeah, you hit it on the head. So so there's another level there around guilt, when, depending on how the windfall comes in. A windfall is a big amount of money that comes to you at one time. You know, basically that's outside of what you're used to managing. So if that's something good, like a lottery, even that's bad, especially if you aren't used to handling that kind of wealth. And especially if you have a rich people or greedy belief floating around in, underneath conscious awareness. But if you add somebody had to die in order for me to get this on top of that, now you've got a whole other level of issues that need to be worked through if you want to maintain financial health, because there's going to be a lot of guilt with it's, it's the, it's the life insurance payouts and it's settlements. Those are the ones that come with really the, the guilt, but it's some shame as well. Mm-hmm, for sure. So those are both independently hard to deal with on their own. Those money is bad money scripts and getting money a large lump sum, especially if somebody had to get injured or hurt or worse to get it. Now, if you pair those on top of each other, there's a lot of extra work to look around or to work through in order to stay financially healthy. Totally. And I'm so glad you mentioned guilt and shame. I know I've talked a lot about guilt and shame on this show. And I think these are two feelings that are very common, especially for people in debt. I know when I had to look at my debt, you know, straight ahead and thinking like, oh my gosh, I have all of this debt. I had so much guilt and shame because I was the one that chose to go to a fancy private school, NYU. And then I couldn't really find a good, well-paying job after that. This was 2011. There was still kind of lingering effects from the recession. And, you know, it's like I had this master's degree and I couldn't really find a great job to pay it back. So it's like I had guilt that I went to this fancy private school and I knew willingly that that was my choice. I had shame that I couldn't find a good enough job to pay it back. At one point, I was on food stamps, which gave me a lot of shame because every kind of script and idea of what I had for my life post master's degree was not that. (laughs) And so I think when there's such a huge, you know, incongruence between what you thought your life was going to be and what it actually is, there can be a huge possibility of just being, you know, covered with shame. And so I think that there's a lot of work to uncover there. And I think a lot of it had to deal with like, you know, we live in a society where a lot of us put a lot of self-worth into our jobs, into our income, into how much we have in savings, into our ability to spend. And when it seems like all of that is cut off, 
you know, you kind of can spiral and like get really down on yourself and feel tons of guilt and shame and just go on this, what I like to call, you know, shame spiral of thinking of like every bad decision you've ever made in your life. I remember like I had this initial shame of like, oh my God, I can't find a job to pay back this debt. And I'm on food stamps. I have so much shame. And then it went to like, I shouldn't have gone to grad school. I shouldn't have quit that full-time job that I had in LA to go to grad school. Maybe I shouldn't have gone into the nonprofit sector to begin with. Like, it just like the shame spiral kept going down and down, down further. And it was like, whoa, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think those are the feelings that we need to investigate with compassion, especially when they come up, because as a lot of people probably know, empirically, like when we feel guilt and shame, we can feel paralyzed. We either don't want to take action or we have such kind of self-hatred or negative feelings that we might not be taking the right actions. And so I try to think now, like when something quote, not great happens, like get away from this binary of good and bad. It's like, let's get away. Something good happened. Something bad happened. It just happened. You know, like this thing just happened. So what can we do to move forward to improve the situation and get away from this like personalization and internalizing it all as me and my fault, you know? So much good stuff in there. And the binary thinking, of course, it's, it goes far beyond that. We're just wired to think that way, but it, it ends up in this us versus them. It ends up with right and wrong. It ends up with there's only one way to do it or not. And it, binary thinking is probably one of the biggest disadvantages I think that our, that our brains have because there's not just two options. Almost never are there just, unless you're flipping a coin, there's no <laughs> yeah. other situations where it's just two. And then you brought up the kind of the feedback loop or the, the cycle that shame or negative emotion leads to feeling bad, which leads to more negative emotion. And pretty soon it's this exponential, you know, this spiral that you, it's hard to break. And then you didn't use the word but there's a lot of regret that can be oh, yeah. in there as well. And regret is a funny emotion because regret is about something that didn't happen or it's an alternate reality that doesn't exist, but we think could have existed if only we did something different. So we, we fast forward and said, well, what if, let's use your examples. What if I didn't quit that job and go to grad school? In the moment, I, I don't believe you believe this now, but in the moment of your spiral, it's easy to believe, wow, I shouldn't have went to grad school. And then you you make a projection, you kind of predict what your life would have been like. And we can do that because we make very quick kind of forecasts in our head. We can project what we think might happen or maybe fine. So you went to grad school, but what if I would have done it this way? Or what if I would have chose a different school? So we're very good at saying, <laughs> very good at knowing that we wouldn't be where we're at right now we're very bad at knowing what would it actually be like because we just have a different version of ourselves still with struggles. They'd just be different struggles and we'd be regretting something different because we always want to alleviate our struggles. And when we're having these struggles, we try to say, well, what if I would have done something differently? I wouldn't be in this predicament. So that regret's really tricky because it's, it's, <laughs> it's really, I mean, I don't know any other way to say it other than we're comparing our version of ourselves right now to an alternate reality that can't exist. 
Totally. And yeah, that like brings me back to one of my most powerful lessons in therapy is accepting things the way they are and not as you want them to be. (laughs) And that is in your life, in your relationships, in everything, you know, how can I accept what is and not what I want it to be? And if you can do that, you'll be so much happier (laughs) and you'll be able to make better decisions because you're focused on the facts and what is actually in front of you instead of in this hypothetical dreamland, which we don't really even know. Like, let's say I didn't go to grad school and I stayed at that nonprofit job. We don't know. Maybe the grants didn't get fulfilled the next year and I would have lost my job. Maybe, you know, I would have been miserable anyway. Like there's so many different realities and possibilities that we don't know. We just automatically like to think that things would have been a certain way, but we don't really know that we can't predict the future. What's worse, if, if I may just interject here, is when you made the decision in this hypothetical line to not go to grad school, today you would be regretting not going to grad school because you wouldn't have known how that would have turned out. Exactly. So it's just, just topsy-turvy stuff. Yeah, and you're totally right. I mean, I had always wanted to get my master's degree. And so this was kind of on my life bucket list. So yeah, you're totally right. I would have been like, oh, I didn't go to my dream school. I can't believe it. I'm still just working at this nonprofit job. So yeah, there's always, you know, something that we would think differently. And yeah, I think life is all about making decisions. You know, the reality works out the way it does and unravels before your eyes. And how can you work with that data in front of you? rather than in this hypothetical space that will literally just lead to misery and regret and guilt and shame. Um, So I wanted to shift gears again a little bit and kind of pick more of your like financial therapist, CFP brain. I know you work with a lot of couples and individuals on improving their money and their communication. And so kind of to that end, how can someone speak up and place a boundary when it comes to money? For example, Let's say a family member asks you for money, you know, hey, I really need some money this month. Can you loan me five hundred or a thousand dollars? Or, you know, a friend wants to go out, but you you really can't swing it or you you can't go to the bachelorette party or the wedding. Or even your spouse wants to make a large purchase, but you don't agree with it. How how can people navigate these situations? I think everyone has had an experience like this at some point. And it's extremely awkward and difficult to deal with. And so I would love to pick your brain on kind of how someone could set that boundary in a way that preserves their integrity and also hopefully that relationship. So good. And let me tell you how not to do it. But this is how <laughs> a lot of people do it. Yeah. Just don't talk about it and squish it and then wait for it to explode later. That's how not to do it. But that's the common way that people handle these. So there's three different examples, which is good. So money. We hate talking about money. We we talked about earlier, it's a taboo topic. And it's mostly because when we talk about money, we open ourselves up to be judged. It's true. No matter what. And it's um, you can't get around that. No matter where you're at on the spectrum, somebody's going to judge you. So kind of working around conversations and money. The first step is around, I mean, it all kind of mixes together. It's hard to separate just one aspect. But getting clear about what's important to you and living your life intentionally, what do what you want out of life and what's money need to do for you? Basically, what's the money for? Once you're clear and you have a good idea about what you want and what you need and what you don't want and what you don't need, that brings a certain sense of confidence that makes it easier to, one, not have to worry about what other people are thinking about you 
Or you don't have to worry about what other people are doing with their money too. Because we have this tendency to say, oh, did you see? I can't believe they bought a new car. They can't afford that car. Well, it's none of your business really. You don't really need to actually care about that. Just like what they think about you is none of your business as well. So that's kind of the foundation. And then with communications, if we're going to have a dialogue, so this would be, I suppose, the, the spouse example, learning to seek to understand first, because we have this tendency, you know, there's this old saying from uh, one of my mentors, Ted Klontz. He said, the scariest words, the four scariest words in English language are, we need to talk. Yes. But it's even worse <laughs> if you say, we need to talk about money. That's even worse. Because we know talking about money is like an electric fence. One day, one minute, we're just opening up the credit card bill. The next minute, we're in a fight and we don't know how we got there. So that happens because we get you know, emotionally flooded really quickly. So if I can put some space in between the stimulus and response and just ask, here's what I thought you said. Is that right? Most of the time, no, you didn't get it right because your mind went to they're trying to attack me or they're trying to get me. That's almost never the case. What's more likely? A loved one is out to get you or there's a misunderstanding. So taking a step, taking a break to recognize that fact will get you a lot further. So let's just let me help you articulate your point. And then now let's have you help me articulate my point. Now we're on the same page. So not having ambushed conversations, no flyby money conversations. Let's have productive money conversations. And then further with the couple example, let's set some rules. I love rules. Rules might sound rigid, but I think that's why they help. So let's set some guidelines around our spending. Maybe, you know, there's a couple of ways that work really well. One of them is we still have the shared accounts, but there's a dollar amount over which we have to have a discussion before the purchase is made. Anything under that, we can make the purchase. So let's use it. is a bad example because groceries tend to cost more than $100. But so let's use $500 as an example. If it's under that, both spouses can buy what they want. If it's over that, your rule, it triggers a discussion that says, here's what I want and here's why I want it. What do you think about that? And remember, we're using our understanding first communication method. So there's no jabbing and there's no fighting or hopefully if we do it right, there's no fighting. Another one is to have, you know, you have mostly shared money, but maybe you each have your own separate account and you decide how much each paycheck goes into that. And neither partner owes the other one any explanation for how they're spending that money. So if they want to save it up over a few months and buy a bigger purchase, that's fine. If they spend it all every month, that's fine as well, because each of those pockets of money are their own to spend. And then some people just manage their finances separately. Um, I would say that's the third best option or the worst of the three, because then you're still not really having a dialogue. That's just you do your thing. I'll do my thing. Yeah. Um, which, which can work. That's more like a, a bandaid on a bullet hole, I suppose. But so that's the couple. That's the relationship example. Uh, another example was your friends. I might be doing these backwards. The okay. other example was the friends who say, let's go out. Let's go do something. Let's go to New York. I actually had a client who had this exact thing happen, except like on a grand scale. I think when you were asking, it was, let's go out to a restaurant or let's go out to a bar. Uh, this client of mine had friends who said, let's go to New York for the weekend. And she didn't want to appear 
poor. I don't want to appear cheap. So she always went, even though she hated it. She didn't like doing it. It didn't happen to be what she valued, but she went anyway because she didn't want to look cheap. Same kind of thing if somebody's asking, hey, let's go out to this fancy expensive restaurant and I don't normally spend that much at restaurants or maybe I have, but I don't, it's not in the budget this month or something like that. There can be a tendency to be guilted or shame, you know, to be, to go along with them just so that you don't have to look whatever you think they're going to think of you. So again, having rules. So there's a guy that I read a lot of, his name's Dan Ariely. He has a cool little framework. He said, create rules for yourself because nobody's going to have you break your rule. And his example is sometimes it's awkward when you see somebody and they got something in their teeth. Yeah. Because it's like, am I going to go actually say that or not? But if you say, excuse me, I have a rule that if I see somebody with something in their teeth, I tell them and you happen to have spinach in your teeth. Like all of a sudden it made it okay because, hey, I have a rule that I tell you this and I'm following that rule. So I have a rule that I don't go out to eat without a week's notice. I mean, I don't know what the rule is. Is it going to be very specific to you? Or I have a rule that I can only go out once a week and I already went out, you know, last Wednesday or something like that. But making, just kind of creating a framework around how you want to spend your money. The old way of saying I don't afford it or I can't afford it. I don't like the word afford. It made sense. Like when I was growing up in poverty, I literally couldn't afford things. Like I didn't have money. But once you get above a certain threshold, like you can basically afford technically anything. So that's not really an excuse anymore unless you reframe it to mean that's not what I like spending money on. So all of that is to say, let's talk about the bigger issue. Most people don't actually know or care what we say or do. We think they do because we're at the center of our own universe, but they often don't care. So if you said, no, thank you, that's going to feel more awkward to you than it's going to sound to them. So do you want to go out for dinner? Do you want to go to New York? No, thank you. Or another really good idea is we tend to use this word, but very wrong. But cancels out the first half of the sentence. You've probably been in a job review where they say you did such a great job. You're an amazing employee, but it doesn't matter what they say after that. They just canceled out all the good stuff. Or a romantic partner says you're such a great person. and I love being around you, but it doesn't matter. So when we say Thanks for the offer. I really appreciate you thinking about me, but unfortunately, I can't go. We're ending with I can't go, and we canceled out the gratitude portion of that. But if we flip that and say, I actually can't make it, but thank you so much for offering. I really appreciate it. It's the same words, but you flipped it, and they're going to say, oh, sounds good. They don't care as much as you think they do. Yeah, and I love that you just said, I actually can't make it. Like I love the just simplicity and the factualness of that. It's like, They don't really need to know the actual reasons, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's your relationship, whether whatever reason, it's none of their business. So if you just say, I can't make it, thanks for inviting me. I think that's a great way to kind of let people down, so to speak, is just, you know, say, oh, I can't actually make it, but thank you. Mm -hmm. That's great. And saying the thank you, the appreciativeness comes second and I can't make it or I'm going to pass this time, but I really appreciate the offer. Keep me in mind next time. You know, those kinds of things. And if the order matters, but just saying, no, I can't make it. It's as simple as that. It's going to feel uncomfortable. That I promise you the first couple of times until you get used to it. But if you force yourself to say it a couple of times, you'll realize that the other person won't have the reaction that you thought they were going to have. Totally. And I think something that I always kind of replay in my mind when I'm in this situation where I'm like, oh God, like, 
I really can't say yes to this, but I just feel so bad. And I don't know, like, I think, would I rather be in this awkward situation and kind of feel slightly embarrassed and weird? Or would I rather do this and resent this friend or resent myself for saying yes to this? And awkwardness is much more fleeting than resentment. Resentment has deep roots. And so I always say, you know, I would rather just feel awkward momentarily and embarrassed momentarily than have this resentment start to build. So I just kind of look at it that way. And it's like, okay, well, there's my decision. Absolutely. And that's a good first step. And then I I fully believe that that awkwardness feeling will go away and it'll just become a part of you kind of matter of fact. No, thanks. And actually, if you if you get to the place where you can have deep, meaningful conversations about money with friends, if you got to the place where you can ask them, hey, if I actually didn't want to go somewhere, would you expect me to say no? Or would you expect me to come along and not want to? They would absolutely say, no, please tell me you don't want to come. So they're actually on your team. Mm-hmm. So it all comes down to this. Remember, when you talk about money, you open yourself up for judgment. And by saying no, we feel, oh, they're going to judge me because they think I'm poor or they think I'm cheap or they think I'm whatever, insert whatever you're thinking. But it, that's just, we make that up. We get to choose how awkward it is. Yeah. And the last example I think I want to get into, as I mentioned, like, what about family members that ask to borrow money? Yeah, great. And I did forget that one. So there is a possibility. There's a behavior, a problematic money behavior called financial enabling. So if you're in the situation where this is usually a parent child, but it could be siblings, it could be friends. Financial enabling is giving money to somebody that's actually harmful to them. So they're coming to you to get themselves out of having to find a job, or they're coming to you to support a higher lifestyle than their job can afford. You're not actually helping them because if you weren't there, they would suffer. So financial enabling is, it's effectively like giving a drink to an alcoholic to stop the shakes, right? It's its actually bad for them. Yeah. And some people will do that at the detriment of their own self. So I'll give money to my kid because he asked, and I don't have the money to retire when I wanted to retire, but I still give the money anyways. So in those circumstances, there's a whole framework around this. But if this is your situation, you have to stop the the giving. And you can't give ultimatums that you fall back on because that just ruins the ultimatum for next time. Like this is the last time. If you say that, it better be the last time. Otherwise, your words are not going to have meaning anymore. So a good framework around this is to set a date. We'll, we'll do this for two more months or however often you were feeding them, feeding the enabling, and then that's it. Or I can use the money that I was giving you and help you find a career counselor or a financial planner or something like that. So that's an extreme case. Well, what about somebody comes to me and says, hey, I just need 500 bucks because I'm short this month. That's again, going to be a personal decision. Maybe this is the first time it's happened and you trust them and that's okay. Maybe this happens a lot and maybe they even pay you back all the time, but you still feel weird about doing it. So the answer for most people, again, everybody's different and you have to read the situation. But for most people, honesty is the policy here. Don't lie. So it's quite common for people to say, ah, I can't afford it. Or um, there's other versions I'm not thinking of right now. But the most common was, oh, no, I can't afford it. Well, if that's not true, then you're lying. And that's not really who you want to be, I would imagine. So, you know, there's some way to say it, frame it around. Well, actually, I've made a rule that I don't lend money to relatives anymore or, you know, because they were going to wrap in that rule. 
statement again, or come back to me in a week. I don't have, or I'll be more comfortable giving you money in a week, something like that. But there's a way to, by doing that, by stretching that out a week, they're going to find some other solution before coming to you. Now, that might be a short-term solution because they'll come back to you next month if this is a recurring thing. But the top level, if you go up 10,000 feet, is to just be honest and say, well, I prefer if I didn't, or I'd rather not, or it's not really in my budget this month, or some true statement that is matter of fact. And much like the one with your friends, it's not likely that they're going to care because you're giving them an opportunity to, okay, I got to go find something. I got to go find money somewhere else. So there are situations where they might throw a fit because it's family, especially if you've done it before. And then you're getting awfully close to that financial enabling piece where you're not helping them. But I think the big lesson with family is to be honest. If you don't feel comfortable doing it, say, I don't feel comfortable doing it. Or if I don't have the money for it, say, I don't have the money for it. It's just being honest because again, just like you said earlier, it's a short-term discomfort that's going to save you now in the long run, because now you've made it clear, I'm not the person you come to when you need money. Yeah. Or I'm not the person you come to unless it's an emergency. I mean, I'm not telling you never to give money to people, but gauge the situation and then just say straight up, here's why I don't want to do it. Yeah, I love that. Just being direct and honest. And I think it can be uncomfortable at first, but it's something that we can practice. So I wanted to end this interview on something kind of about values. I know that you work with a lot of people creating financial plans around their values. You know, some people might not even know what their values are. What is the best way to identify those values? Yeah, for sure. And I talked about this a little bit earlier with the confidence that comes with knowing what money is for, right? So supporting your life. So most people float around life from circumstance to circumstance. We let life happen to us instead of pursuing a life that we want. So it's worth sitting down and thinking, in three years, what do I want out of life? Where do I want to be working? What do I want to be doing? Who do I want to be doing it with? And just trying to set a direction. I'm not personally a fan of goals, Mm -hmm. but I do like having guesses. You know, things change. So where do we think we want to go? Where should we aim? And designing a life around what we actually want out of life is what I call this money mindfulness. But living intentionally instead of reactively takes away a lot of anxiety around not having direction. Because if I don't have direction, then I can go anywhere. And anywhere is too many places to be. So how do I know what do I what do I want? Well, ask yourself, what if money wasn't an issue? What would I do differently? And actually visualize this. I call these deep imagination exercises. So don't take the gut answer of, I'd have a mansion on the in yeah. Hawaii. I've got a yacht. Exactly. I have the yacht and it's at my mansion in Hawaii. Well, would you though? So put yourself in that shoes, in the shoes of that person. And what does Monday look like? And what does Tuesday look like? And you'll probably find that I actually wouldn't like that life because all my family's on the mainland and I wouldn't like flying back and forth and it's too much upkeep. That's not to say that you shouldn't dream big, but what kind of life would you live and be realistic about that? And then here's the trick. Why would you live that way? So feel free to dream big. Remember, these aren't goals. I don't want to actually have a mansion in in Hawaii because I can't afford it. 
But why? What is important about the mansion in Hawaii? If, if say, that was actually something that I wanted, what is it about that that's important to me? Is it living in nature? Is it being close to water? Is it being away from people? I mean, there's an infinite number of whys that could be, but whatever those whys that fall out of that, that's what's important to you. And so now you can start to figure out, well, how do you take those values, those whys, and design a life around it that you have, or that, you know, using the money that you have. So live the best life possible with the money that you have. And the best life possible is going to be dictated by why did you want those things that you wanted? Totally. And I think the point of managing your finances is figuring out the how to get to the why. And that's, you know, Mm -hmm. we're figuring out the how, making money, managing our finances and getting to the why, which is, you know, I want to quit my job or I want to live here or this is the lifestyle I prefer. And that would bring me the optimal amount of contentness or calmness or peace. And I think that's that's really important. So I appreciate you sharing all of your expertise with us. This has been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything else that you want to add or where can people find you? Yeah. So the thing that I would add, and I know you've had other guests say something similar, so I think it's worth repeating so everybody can hear how important that is. From my seat as a financial therapist, when people first start talking to me, they'll tell me everything that's going on. And then they'll close with some version of have you heard of that before? Or is this weird? Or can you help somebody like me? Or has this happened to other people? Yes, this happens to other people. You don't know it because nobody talks about money. So everybody is out there acting like there's nothing wrong. But everybody's a little bit weird with money. So absolutely, yes, these things are happening to everybody. It's not just you. So that should help you breathe a little bit of a breath of fresh air. It's not so much misery loves company, but you're not weird. You are perfectly normal. You're not alone. Yes. Yeah. So if you find yourself wanting to dig deeper into the emotional side of money, there's a couple of resources, financialtherapyassociation.org. There's a directory of financial therapists there, financialpsychologyinstitute.org. There's a directory of financial psychology experts there. Uh, Full disclosure, I am on both of those lists, but there will be a lot of different people for you to explore. And I should add, with financial therapy, since it's a blending of personal finance and mental health, we talk about home disciplines. So some of us will have a home discipline of money and finance like I do. And then we've learned the therapeutic side later. Some people will have a home discipline of mental health and they learn the personal finance stuff. So that could be important or that is important depending on what your needs are for financial therapy. So those two, explore those two websites. If you've been fascinated by anything that we've talked about, I write a newsletter, Money Health Newsletter. It comes out every Thursdays. So I encourage you to sign up for that. It's not a gimmicky thing. It's just I use a lot of drawings, try to help demonstrate ideas. And you can learn more at moneyhealth.com slash m. HW, that's mental health wealth. So money health solutions slash MHW. You can learn more about me there. You can find out all the links to social media. You can download a couple of ebooks that I give away and you can sign up for the newsletter there as well. Wonderful. I definitely recommend everyone check out Derek. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been great. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe and leave a review. If you want to suggest a topic or simply say hello, you can reach me at mentalhealthandwealthshow at gmail.com. You can check out the rest of our content at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.